0: I resonate completely with slow living, but it doesn't have to be that it's a very slow paced life. Is my life less busy now? No. (laughs) Do I spend more time outside? Less time in front of my laptop? Do I buy less? Do I eat better food? All of those things are true now that I'm here. And so even though my day is as full, it is full with nurturing stuff. And that to me is slow living. Those kinds of needs and wants that I used to have have just sort of gone, which I think makes living slowly easier.
2: We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here.
1: Now, let's dig in. Hey, Mom. It is lovely to see you, and I think it would be fun to let
2: The listeners in on just some of
1: our adventures and getting this intro
2: recorded. Yeah, really? Okay, so today, for whatever reason, my internet at the farmhouse is not working. So I just picked up everything and I came down the street here to the feed store. So here I am at the feed store, and everybody's here buying their flowers and their horse feed and everything. So if you hear background noise, that's what's going on. Yeah. So they have great internet. Great internet. It's so awesome. It's really fun to have everything working. I love it. Yeah. You know what's so funny about that? So this feed store
1: that she's sitting in, y'all, is this really cool old general store.
2: Yeah. That's been there what hundred years? It might have been built a hundred years ago, but it was you know it was run by a local family for like forty years. And then it was closed for a while. Closed for a while and has just recently up and back up. Yeah. A year or two ago. Yeah. And here we are. (laughs) Isn't that something? That's so fun. So
1: coming at you from, well, half of us. Mary is coming from (laughs) Seneca Feed Store. And I'm in Washington, D.C. And yay, we're so excited to introduce this episode. It's going to be so fun. I love this episode. I learned so much. But first, I also want to say, I want to compliment you, Mom, because I was over at the farm the other day, and your garden is just so gorgeous. I've been putting up some videos that you've taken on Instagram so we can share. People can see. If you're not following us, we are Lady Farmer. Um, Mom can post some garden updates. It's so much more fun when there's, like, things in the garden to talk about. Yeah. But it's so beautiful, and what I really love is several years ago, I guess almost 10 now, when y'all moved in, in the garden, you had like seen a YouTube video of someone like laying down mulch
2: and then cardboard and mulch. Was it like a layer like that or was it just mulch? Yeah, the advice was to put something down first and then cover that with mulch. And I just took a pasture, what had been a horse pasture, and covered it with whatever cardboard I could come up, you know, brown paper bags and all that kind of thing. And then had the tree company come and deliver for free. They'll do that. Just a whole bunch of mulch over it. And over the years, it has just created this really awesome, beautiful soil now. It's like decomposed in this really soft, spongy.
1: Oh, it's so great. It feels so good to walk on. And now there's like sweet little like clovers and stuff growing on it. It's like a carpet.
2: Yeah, it's really awesome. I think it's about 7,500 square feet. And there's these sweet little paths that y'all have mowed.
1: And Dorothy, mm-hmm. who also helps us type up the yeah. show notes to this podcast. Shout out to Dorothy. Dorothy! <laughs> he helps in the garden, too. So it's a fun little lady farmer project.
2: It looks so good. I have two ponds, frogs and fish and birds yeah. and the whole thing. A bigger one and a smaller one. And the trees I planted several years ago are now coming up and bearing fruit and... uh Yeah, it's a good lesson in patience. I mean, um, Mm. it takes a while to develop these things. So 10 years now. Well, we bought the property 10 years ago. So it took a while to get going in the garden. So I would say this is my 10th season in the garden.
1: Yeah, so cool. Anyway, so that was my share and tell was about your garden. So there
2: you go. (laughs) Okay. So do you have a share and tell? I do. And it is about the garden. Surprise, surprise. So fun. So this year we have been trying to stick to planting by the signs of the moon. This is an old tradition. I knew about it when I was growing up in East Tennessee, which is Southern Appalachia. A lot of the old timers around there were still doing it. And I heard about it. But of course, as a young person, I wasn't paying that much attention. And now that I'm older and have left that region, I realize there are really not that many people that know much about it anymore. It's kind of a dying art. It's kind of one of those areas of knowledge that is going out with the people that practiced it. But you can still get access to this information through the Farmer's Almanac, and there are some other resources, not not too many. So as a way of just enjoying the garden and enjoying growing things, and also a way of preserving my own legacy from Southern Appalachia, I've really been applying those principles to the garden this year. So how it works is every month the moon passes through all the zodiac signs, and there's a light phase of the moon and a dark phase of the moon, and there are certain times within that to do certain things, planting harvesting, weeding, all kinds of things. And we actually have a calendar in the Almanac that is a guide to this. And I've been really using that calendar in the Almanac. It has come in very handy. You just look on the day and there are little icons there that tell you what it is a good day for. So I wanted to tell our audience that if they have flowers to plant this year, June 8th and 9th, coming up next week, the moon will be in Libra. And that's an excellent time to plant flowers. So just passing on that little tip, if you're interested in trying this, try it and and see how it works for you. I I have noticed that when I plant things on the right day in the fertile signs, things just do very well. You could transplant things and they don't wilt as much. They just seem really happy to go where you're putting them. And could it be my imagination? Sure. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm having fun doing it anyway. So that's my little tip for the day plant flowers next week on June 8th and 9th and see how it works for you.
1: It is so fun. And you know, like whether or not there's anything to it, I would argue that there is something to it because like anything else, it's really fun to have like an external form of organization for these kinds of things,
2: or then you're just overwhelmed. It just helps you make decisions about things. And I don't know, that's fun. Well, it paces you. Dorothy and I were talking about this the other day. It paces you. Like, oh, today is not a good day to plant those mm-hmm. things. We're gonna wait. And so then you it allows you to turn to all the other tasks. And yeah, it does kind of help with the overwhelm. It's like there's so much to do out there. Yeah. This helps you select what is it a good day for? Yeah. What are we supposed to do today in the garden according to the position of the moon? So any of you that are really interested in this, I of course recommend the Farmer's Almanac, but also we have a calendar in our own almanac, the Lady Farmer Almanac. And Emma, tell people how to get there. Oh yeah. So you can go to ladyfarmer.com,
1: click on community. If you follow us on Instagram, it's linked in our bio. And if you're a good Dirt listener... We have a special Good Dirt membership for you. However, I should say that planting calendar is not in the Good Dirt membership, but it's in the premium membership. (laughs) But we do totally really rely on y'all's support in this way through the community to keep the show going. And so we'd love to see you in there and we'd love to follow along your progress and hear how you're doing with your planting by the signs. Also in the works, we hope to have like sometime in the future, I don't know how near future, we hope to have a whole course on planting by the moon because there's so much to it. Yeah. Mom, as you have found, there's not really one straightforward source. You've sort of cobbled together a lot of different stuff to learn what you've learned. So yeah, stay
2: tuned. Yes. And um, one of the reasons I thought to share that today is because this week's episode is about flowers. Our guest today is Bex Partridge, and she's coming to us all the way from Devon, England. And she is a plantswoman extraordinaire and a floral artist who specializes in dried flowers. And this is a niche which she's developed into a full-time business. She does installations, teaching tutorials, workshops. She creates floral art, and she's also a mom. She's the author of two books, Everlastings, and Flowers Forever. And that one is to be released this month. Yeah. And if you aren't already following
1: her on Instagram, she is quite the f- inspiring follow. I really think that's how I first found her. Photography and her art is just so enchanting. And what she does with dried dried flowers is so beautiful. And it's just the whole idea behind it is beautiful. We really enjoyed this meaningful discussion. We're so lucky to have lots of those on The Good Dirt. And it was really about so much more than flowers. Bex talks about finding her way from the corporate life into a new home and community where she has been able to explore her passion for being in the garden, working with plants, and creating art from the things she grows. We talk a lot about the long process of trying to balance making a living and doing what you love about creating sustainability in life and business and what it's like when your own creative desires don't meet the expectations of others. <laughs> Vex is so warm, wise, and a whole lot of fun to talk to. We know you'll enjoy this. Also, fun fact about this, Mom, I don't even know if I told you this, but but our editor, Alexandra, shout out Alexandra, after she edited this conversation, she emailed, you know, she emails me the finished file and she was like I love this conversation, Emma. Bex was so inspiring. And then she sent me this picture of this crazy flower that she had seen on her walk that reminded her of this. So
2: that was really fun. It really is inspiring. I just really enjoyed this so much. And so here she is, Bex Partridge of Botanical Tales.
0: It's been a very long winding journey to get to where I am and now that I'm here actually there were threads taking me in this direction all the time but it's been very convoluted (laughs) and I guess first I should probably say that I have always for as long as I can remember been in love with gardening and whilst my business is kind of primarily built around dried flowers the centre of it the heart of it is growing and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for that part of the journey and the process, you know, that goes into kind of the things that I make. But yeah, I had a grandma and my mum who's still around, both of whom are really avid, passionate gardeners. And that was instilled in me or maybe encouraged in me from a very young age. I remember being in my 20s, married to my husband, owned our first house, where we lived in Farnham, which was just outside London. And All of our friends out clubbing at the weekend and I just wanted to be at home growing sweet peas and extending the garden a little bit. You know, this was just living in a town, so we didn't have a huge amount of space, but I just loved it. So that has always been with me. But I I left school at 16, which is quite unusual in my family. My dad's a lawyer, my mum's a teacher, my brother's both trained to be lawyers, my half brother and sister did the whole university thing so i was the real odd one out in the family and i've always been like that just carved my own path whether it was you know the easy route or the hard route i just kind of knew what i wanted and i think the thing i struggled with at an early age was committing to studying something that i didn't really know if i wanted or was that passionate about because you know i'm 42 in a few weeks time and so you're talking 25 years ago the way people spoke to you about what was possible in your career was vastly different to what it is now you know there was no nothing really inspiring yeah so I just didn't want to do that so I trained to be a chef uh, when I was 17 18 so I did a year of cookery school and I absolutely loved it but I really didn't like the hours I, I found it very hard to be working weekends when all my friends and my boyfriend were out all the time so I swiftly moved into wedding planning which is obviously not too far from what I do now so the lady that I worked for in this catering company who I worked for as a chef and then as a wedding planner was really into seasonal cooking and growing and used herbs and edible flowers in her food, which was quite forward thinking back then. And I obviously didn't realize it at the time, but hugely influential in what I was doing and helping me understand a bit more about seasonal eating and, you know, working with what you've got around you rather than bringing things in all the time. And then I met my... Partner who's now my husband, and all got together with him, been friends most of our lives, and um, decided to go traveling for a couple of years. So we did that, which was an amazing adventure. And uh, when I came back, I got a job with an organic food company as a PA. And then slowly I started slipping into marketing, basically. So I started a career in that. And then I slipped into the corporate world, which was oh. oh my goodness. I just. Looking back, it was all about kind of external validation. You know, I worked for a big organization. I don't know if you know of Unilever in America, but it's a huge Mm -hmm. uh, FMCG. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought, I thought this is what life was, because I was getting so much congratulations, but I was deeply unhappy, basically, for 10 years of my life. And that sounds really sad, but And you were probably getting a good
1: paycheck, too.
0: I did but you know I got really into kind of understanding the ties that being in full-time employment you know there's obviously huge benefits and for some people that is the right way of life but actually for me I really struggled with the control that companies have over your day when you're employed you know and and mm-hmm. I realized more and more particularly after I had my children actually that I was spending most of my life doing things I didn't want to do with people I didn't particularly like and <laughs> Being inside, and this office we worked in had floor to ceiling windows with beautiful countryside outside. But I felt like a caged animal. I was just, Mm. you know, just looking out the window all the time, but having to do work. And so within that job, I did do some really good stuff. And I learned I purposely kind of carved a career for myself there where I was working on brands that were doing good for the world and the environment and all that kind of stuff. So I was really kind of pushing that agenda and doing well. But after the birth of my second son, and we just moved, we'd come back from a two years in Amsterdam. We went there with my job, and it was brilliant. And that kind of really changed both me and my husband's life values, I would say, being in Amsterdam. I don't know if you've ever been, but or if you know anything about the kind of culture, but it's very egalitarian. So everyone's equal regardless of what you do. Of course, there's class systems and all that kind of stuff, but. A barista is as celebrated as a manager mm-hmm. and a bar person has as much respect for his job and everyone else respects his job as much as anyone else. And that was really eye opening for me because my family structure and the way I've been brought up is very hierarchical, you know, and it's all about career progression. And yeah, it kind of made me and my husband actually take a step back and reassess not really consciously, but just really kind of helped us think about how we wanted to live our lives. And um, came back to the UK, I had another baby, my second son, we moved house and moved into this garden in Farnham, where we've lived all of our lives. And it was in the town centre, this house, but the garden basically was, uh, the house was built on a little section of an old garden. So what was growing there, and it was all kind of coincidental with my son being born in March and then the garden sort of coming to life and me being on maternity leave. And I was suddenly just really wakened up to, yeah, to the natural world in some way. I don't know. It was serendipitous. I don't know whether it was just the right time. But I started to kind of document that through Instagram, which is how Botanical Tales started. I really thought that my that all that was going to be was just an Instagram account with some photos of me sharing the flowers that I loved and the stories behind them.
1: And at this point, it was just maternity leave, right? So you hadn't... Yeah. Or had you left your job? No, 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 no. Gosh, oh, no. So okay. I
0: was in a situation where... And again, this comes back to what we were talking about when you're in full-time employment. I had a wonderful... Mm-hmm wonderful situation which was I got basically a year's full pay for being on maternity leave which is oh my in the UK. but you had to go back and work for a year afterwards or you had to pay all your money back so you're then in a locked in situation mm-hmm. and I knew I would only want to go back part-time so I didn't spend all my money because I was going to have to repay some of it but even that going back part-time was really you know by the time it came to it was feeling really really difficult but obviously you know I had to do it for money reasons and for contract reasons but in that time on mat leave I had been given a bunch of flowers before we left our old house by a friend and it was just a bunch of flowers from the local supermarket but it contained lots of flowers that kind of dried quite naturally so I think Definitely not native English, but it was f- sort of flowers from South Africa, protea, and all of that kind of stuff that actually dries really well. And I just happened to leave it because we, were, you know, it was a really busy time in a in a vase, and it dried. And <laughs> I just put together a little wreath one day, and I took that with me to the new house. And then somewhere along my journey in botanical tales, I shared that on Instagram, and and suddenly uh, from there, it just I think because I have always loved flowers, and I my grandma has always had dried flowers. And so it's always been a big part of my life to bring, you know, foliage and all this kind of stuff into the house. But for the first time, it was like, I'd f- finally found people that got it. <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know, you're you talking, how old is my son now? He's six now. So this five, yeah, it was five, six years ago, and Instagram was a totally different place. It was much more community based there where you'd go on and you'd know everyone that you interacted with. And yeah, I just built up this kind of audience who loved what I did. And it gave me a lot of confidence to just keep. Going really and practicing, and within that year, I then started to grow flowers to dry. So, we had an allotment space that we'd owned for about 15 years, and my husband agreed to let me turn some of it over to drying flowers, growing and drying flowers. So, that's like the first time I'd properly kind of gone out intentionally to sow seeds to grow to make something with, or even just cut, you know, before it was very kind of haphazard. And then it kind of went from there and it got to the point where my external life in comparison to the one that I had in London where I worked. So I was commuting up to London every day, leaving the boys at home with my husband or going to nursery But then also having this side project, which was getting bigger and bigger, that I just couldn't marry the two together anymore. It was too painful to go to work and Mm -hmm. in that job. And so and it was getting really difficult at home. I, you know, I was really, really unhappy. And my husband just sat me down September three and a half years ago. And was like, you have to resign. We will make it work. But this is not working. And the money's not worth it, basically. And I'd obviously been saving you know, as much as I could in all of that time to kind of give me a bit of a buffer. Yeah. And so he forced me to hand in my resignation and I did. And, and I didn't really know what was going to happen with Botanical Tales, but I just felt I'm very gut led and I just felt like something would come of it. But I did for the next two years do part-time freelance contracting, marketing and project management work to basically just help me figure out what I wanted to do and give me the security to you know to not worry if I didn't get a month of work or to say no to a client that didn't feel right because they were asking for bleach flowers or something instead of thinking I had to take everything just to kind of make money but for the last 18 months it's just been solely the business as it is now which is just me in my studio in Devon growing and drying flowers <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, a long journey. I'm quite old now, but it's, uh, I feel very happy where I am.
1: <laughs> oh no, that's so lovely. And I so appreciate you going into all the um, the windiness yes. because it's just it's it always is like that. And it, that part is hard to say in an Instagram caption or, yeah. you know, so that's really fun. And just to clarify for maybe the listener who doesn't know, currently mm. you're a floral designer. Do you mm. work mostly with dried flowers what's your kind of main right now what are you doing
0: yeah I would say it is 99% dried flowers and that's not to say I dislike fresh because I love them and it's not to say I won't go into that in the future if I grow oodles of flowers that I can't dry then potentially you know that could be a possibility as well so it's not a rigid this is all I do but it's definitely where my passion is. It's where I feel most happy and comfortable. And for me, a lot of it is to do with the fact that they last, which sounds like a silly thing to say, but I love to see a flower growing on a plant and staying on that plant until it has been, you know, pollinated by a bee and then goes on to be a seed head. That for me is perfection. And I I really struggle with cutting flowers, even for my own business, because you know, the only way I can kind of make peace with it is the fact that I then get to go on and dry them. And yeah, I just find the fleetingness of fresh flowers, I find it a bit sad. Like, of course, I appreciate their beauty. But, you know, especially for big, big events like weddings, I could never do that with fresh because I just it feels really wasteful to me. And it's not I'm not saying that anyone who uses fresh flowers or has fresh flowers is being wasteful. But this is just right. my own you know, because I can understand them. And I had fresh flowers at my wedding. Although if I was to get married now, I definitely would go all out dried. But (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and I do basically I run workshops, I educate a lot. So on how to grow and how to dry, but then also how to create the things, you know, that you want to afterwards. And I make products for people's homes. So wreaths, pressed flower art, things like that. And then I do lots of installations for shop windows or retail spaces or restaurants. People who are looking to kind of bring the outside in and have a design that's going to last a bit longer than just a couple of weeks or something.
1: Oh, so fun. And is it just you or do you have
0: a team? No, it's just me. (laughs) Wow. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So do you grow flowers on your own? property there or do you have other places where you grow them? And
0: So we've only moved here 18 months ago to Devon and Uh we have half an acre. So it's more than I've ever, ever had garden wise and something that I've always kind of secretly wished and wanted for, but I've always been quite conscious of not sort of being ungrateful for what I do have, if you know what I mean. So it's been like a dream in my head, but not one that I kind of said out loud. But anyway, with the lockdown. We, I think like many people, we just kind of reassessed where we were in our lives and being the age we are with boys who are now nine and six, we kind of thought we need something more. And it wasn't intentional that I needed more land necessarily for my business, but it was more that we just wanted more space. Mm -hmm. And by space, I just mean a less busy environment so where we were before in Farnham was a commuter town to London so super busy lots of cars lots of people very kind of built around consumerism so in a town with shops and restaurants and you know all that kind of stuff and if you wanted to access the countryside you had to drive to get there and then you know it was quite formulaic And so, yeah, we decided to move to Devon, which is where we are now. And so I've got half an acre and I've got it's a very wild plot with lots of kind of established shrubs and things like that that I can forage from. And then I have a growing space, which I'd say is probably about maybe about a fifth of the half acre, which is where I grow sort of all my annuals and, you know, things like that, that I specifically grow to dry. And then I have various kind of little sections of flower beds that are mainly perennials, which I would use for seed heads, you know, later on in the season and stuff like that, but for all year round interest. And then in November, because I'm bonkers, (laughs) (laughs) I took on a whole uh, allotment plot at the village down the road, which is about three, I think it's three or four miles down the road. I mean, I... Just I couldn't give up the opportunity when I was offered it, but my husband does think I'm mad, but I don't know if you have allotments over in America, but there's a, it's a real like once you've had one, you, you really miss it when you don't have it. So yeah, I grew on that as well. Is that like a vacant lot that you get to use or, or a lease or something? Yeah. You sign a lease and it's kind of like ongoing until you don't want it anymore, but they're really, it's a really cheap way of borrowing land basically. So I think I pay 25 pounds a year for this whole allotment plot, which is huge, But the great thing about it is, particularly because I work on my own, you're obviously working and growing alongside other people who have their own plots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I'm feeling like I'm just stuck on the hill with no one to talk to but my husband, I can just pop to the allotment and I know that there'll be, you know, oodles of people there that will want to talk to me about what I'm growing or how the season's going. And so, yeah, that's really good. So, but it's very different here where I am now. I've always grown in a town center in a very sheltered garden, you know, the equivalent of kind of a walled garden. You've got fences and, you know, all the other gardens around you. And I'm now basically at the top of a hill, which has very, very extreme weathers. (laughs) And I'm learning very quickly where I can plant and where I can't and what grows and what doesn't. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. I think the idea of a walled garden is particularly British. I don't think we have that so much here. Maybe in some really
0: dense cities. Yeah, no, yeah. It's a very British thing, but they're just, they're wonderful because they're so sheltered. so private. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but here I've got like, I'm just exposed to the elements and lots of my plants grew diagonally last year because I forgot about the prevailing winds and then they were just like, <laughs> Aw well,
2: so you've only had really one season there. I mean, you're going into your second growing season, right? Is
0: that right? Yeah. Second growing season. And to be honest as well, I think I feel like that first because we moved here in the pandemic so we still had the first six to eight months was in lockdown pretty Mm -hmm. much so um and I was homeschooling the boys and it was a really stressful time because here we'd had that was coming up to a year of yeah broken life in some way and we'd obviously had the stress of moving and I had some big work jobs that I was working on as well and I'm I'm here now in the kind of middle of the second spring and i'm seeing things that i definitely didn't see last year because i think i was really it was a very insular year and quite intense in your headspace and yeah yeah so i'm noticing things now where i'm like i don't remember that last year like the blossom tree Outside our annex. I was like, I don't even remember that flowering last year, but of course it did because we had cherries. So yeah. That's really
2: interesting. Yeah, it Mm. is. So what do you have? And do you have a lot of native things native to where you are? Or had someone cultivated the land before you and put other things in? Like, what have you got there? I'm just interested. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, so I wish I did know more about the history of this particular plot of land. What we know is the couple that built the house that we live in inherited it from his Mm mum who had a bungalow which they then turned into our house and I know that they weren't gardeners because they told me that they weren't but they took care of things there are lots of really beautiful shrubs here like camellias which grow really well on our soil so we've got clay soil so I've got seven or eight different varieties of amazing camellias which flower from February right the way through to June a beautiful magnolia tree there's a cherry tree, a plum tree, which are all really established. And there's a ginkgo tree, a specimen ginkgo tree, which is taller than our house, which apparently his mum put in. So I feel like she was a plants lady. And all of those old things that are in here are thanks to her. And, you know, thankfully, they left them and and kind of they're still thriving. But my studio where I work, the people that we bought the house from just had it as a potting shed. So they had their lawnmower and you know, shears and all that kind of stuff. And we had to apply for planning permission to get something changed in the garden. And we saw a planning notice from 1950 something rather for the lady that lived here before who used to run this studio as her pottery studio. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's got like, that's what I mean. I wish I knew more about the land and the lady that lived here before the couple that we bought from because she was she's an, an, an artist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's really interesting. And I always feel like in my studio, there's it's not a potting shed. It's it's such a beautiful space. It's got a real kind of feeling to it, you know, more than just like wooden walls and a couple of windows. So yeah.
2: So tell us more about botanical tales. Do you do weddings or what else do you do and how do you dry your flowers and what's your process?
0: And yeah, you know, talk to us all about botanical tales. So I don't do that many weddings. I love to do the bridal party florals. So whether that's the bouquet or a flower crown or something like that. So I don't know what it's like in America, but in the UK, dried flowers is definitely becoming more popular, But it's still quite a minute amount of people who would really fully appreciate and love dried flowers to the extent that have only dried flowers at their wedding. And I do get inquiries, but I tend to just do bridal florals unless someone who I know is kind of gets my way of working and the things that I do is fully on board. So it's less weddings and it's more installations and work for people's homes and things like that. Because of that, and because of the fact that I use work with dried flowers, my year is a bit different to a normal kind of person who's working with flowers right because normally whether you're a florist or you're a flower grower your really busy points in the year are the summer when (laughs) everything's in bloom whereas for me and this actually fits really nicely with my lifestyle as well which is that I've got two small kids and they get six weeks off in the summer and I can't be a flower farmer Of fresh flowers because i'd never see them in the summer months maybe when they're a bit older i could do that because instead what it is is my busy time is basically september all the way through to probably january february when fresh flowers are less available and people are slowly sort of turning more into that indoors environment because that's where dried flowers are kind of best placed really but that's not to say the rest of the year isn't busy i do lots of other things and obviously i'm growing that whole time as well so from january all the way through Do
1: you harvest at a certain time in order to dry them a certain way?
0: Yeah. So the majority of things that I dry are in the summer. I am experimenting more and more with spring blooms, for example. So tulips and ranunculas and all of those kind of fleshy flowers, but they're much harder to dry and much harder to get to dry to the point where you can work with them and get longevity out of them, you know, without deteriorating quite quickly. So Yeah, my drying season probably starts properly from about June time and then it will go all the way through really until December when you can still pluck a seed head from the flower bed or from the hedgerow or something like that and use it there and then. And I guess the top tips I can give someone who potentially wanted to dry is, first of all, there are no real set rules about what does and doesn't dry. I think there is a level of acceptability of dried flowers depending on where you are along your journey because I will except anything dried but some people may think that some things are a bit gross if they're dried (laughs) so a dahlia for example is going to go from being a big blousy bloom when it's fresh to quite a small crinkled little flower when it's dried with like tissue paper thin petals and I think they're absolutely stunning but they are nothing in comparison to what they're fresh self is versus something like a straw flower which they don't really change much at all in their structure Mm -hmm. but the main thing that you want to do when you're drying flowers is remember that it's a bit different to when you're cutting flowers fresh so if you were a flower farmer or you know in your garden and you wanted to cut flowers for a vase or a display you would cut them just before they open so that they can go on and open in the house and you get you know longer enjoy them basically if you cut them on the day they're looking beautiful then you're going to get one or two days before they kind of disintegrate or fade and the difference with dried flowers is you actually want to pick them when they're open and at their best for the most part you don't want to cut them in bud because that means they will dry in bud and often that means that they're too fleshy and they might go a bit moldy or something so you're looking for a really kind of beautiful open flower but not one that's gone too far over because then you may get petals that fall off and things like that. And I, I do, I love that about growing flowers to dry is that I can also enjoy them in the garden and I can yeah. watch them and pollinate them for a bit before I go and cut them. And it's lots of the kind of um, the photos and videos that I'm able to take of my garden, I wouldn't be able to do if I was cutting for fresh because they'd never be in bloom, mm-hmm. you know, in that stage of bloom kind of thing. So I do, I love the visual aesthetic as well. And I love the fact that they're left there. For the bees and butterflies to have a bit before i then cut them and then the best thing to do is strip all of the leaves or as many of the leaves off as you can uh, from the stalk once you have cut the flower that you want to dry if you do want to leave a few leaves on kind of around the top as a bit of interest that's quite nice and can make them look a bit more organic than just the flower head on its own this isn't necessary but i now that i'm growing on a kind of bigger scale i tend to cut my stems wrap an elastic band around the amount that i'm going to dry in a bunch so that can be. Between kind of five and ten stems, depending on how big the flower is. And I leave them in a bucket overnight in a cool place, just have a really good drink. And it sounds a bit counterintuitive because you're then going on to dry them, but what that means is you're not drying them in a stressed Uh state. You're, you know, you're giving them the best chance, basically. And then I would say for probably 95% of things that I dry, I just hang them upside down in bunches. And the key things are that you make sure that you have a space which is damp free so you know no moisture somewhere that's kind of got an ambient room temperature so you don't want it too cold but you also don't want it too hot if it's too cold they can get moldy just because they're not drying quick enough if it's too hot you'll find that the stems just dry really quickly and can become quite brittle which makes them really hard to work with and then you want to make sure it doesn't have to be a dark room there are benefits to drying things in the dark, but it just they just need to not be in direct sunlight. That's the main thing. So I dry a lot of my things on the back wall here. And because of the trees overhead and the windows being there and it being quite low-ceilinged cabin, the sun never hits them.
1: And then once it is dry to the place that you want it, do you treat it with anything or like spray no. anything? Okay.
0: Yeah. So I okay. don't use any chemicals. I don't use anything. So I grow naturally and organically and then when it comes to my work as well I don't wire anything sometimes for the mechanics of you know if I'm building a big installation I might have to use chicken wire but I always make it so that the stems can be removed and reused if possible or removed and then composted but with the spraying so something like a pampas grass or maybe I don't know if you have wild clematis over where you are but we call it old man's beard you've probably seen it Mm -hmm. it's something comes out in autumn here and it's in the hedgerows and people use it in loads of different Kind of displays and things but these are basically fluffy seed heads that just go everywhere after a period of time so some people choose to spray those things with hairspray and that kind of sets them and keeps them in place but yeah I don't I just try not to use anything like that and I don't you can dye things naturally using kind of soya based dyes or natural vegetable dyes and you know drawing the dye up the stem of the flower but even though that's all natural I still think why change something that nature's kind of made the way it is. And it's really amazing how
1: already perfectly beautiful it
0: is. I completely agree, obviously.
2: (laughs) I I love that. And it sounds like it's either very low waste or zero waste or it's everything
0: biodegradable. Yeah. So I did a big 40, basically number 40, for someone whose party it was in the local area a couple of weeks ago. So I made this, you know, this beautiful kind of, instead of a helium balloon or something, she had these 40s on the stage. and Yeah, it was lovely, but... I've just spent today taking those apart and I've got all of these flowers now, which I will go on and use somewhere else because, yeah, I mean, her house isn't big enough to have a massive 40 in it. And also she's like, you know, it was great for the party, but (laughs) so, and that's something that I offer because, you know why would you not reuse them if you can of course they're shorter stems they're a bit harder to work with them you know I'll be limited with what I can do with them but I can definitely make something out of them and anything else gets composted puts into our compost in the garden and eventually we'll go back into the soil to
1: yeah. reinvigorate
0: the soil so it's it's very much as much as possible kind of low waste as I can be really. It's funny I used to feel really like I was a bit of a cheapskate but oh, then no, I was Well, you know, yeah, when I first started out, I was thinking, gosh, you know, should I be offering this? But now I'm like, no, I will, because otherwise it's just going to be thrown away. Well, it's true that when you have a big, beautiful flower install, I mean, a huge
1: part of it, part of your service as a service provider would be to take it away when people are done. So literally like that's a line item you can charge mm. for like I'll also take care of the end of life of this thing so yeah why wouldn't yeah. you if you're gonna take it down for them which is also a service yeah reuse your stuff wow.
0: that makes so much sense yeah that's- <laughs> I know I think it's a confidence thing as I'm more assured of who I am and who my business is I'm like of course I'll do yeah. this and then, and then you're like you know everyone's like of course why would you not do that yes we can relate
2: oh it <laughs> serves the good dirt in a big way yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. the whole ethos about behind what you're doing and, you know, things in their natural state and low waste and it, all compostable. It's just also, it's just, we're just very simpatico with it.
1: I'm really interested in general, just the wedding industry as a whole. Yeah. I'm interested to hear about the UK versus America yeah. and then also obviously the past two years and what that's done to the wedding industry and like you worked as a wedding planner and just sort of Mm. what your journey has been like and how your perspective on this has been shaped by your experience in the wedding industry and what you see and like how you feel about it
0: yeah I guess maybe it's not even the wedding industry is it it's just consumerism floristry as a whole like okay I mean because I can't comment on how much money people spend on weddings and stuff because I've been there and I did that and of course in hindsight I'm like I wish I had. Done that because I know the value of it is, you know, but that's hindsight is a wonderful thing. But I think what still continues to surprise me is how many people work in the flower industry but don't understand seasonality or the way things grow. And it's a bit like being a chef and not understanding where your food comes from. Mm. And I think there's the pandemic and now, you know, everything that's going on basically with finite resources, right, in the world at the moment. It's made people florist as well over with COVID and the pandemic in the UK where they couldn't get, well, first of all, there weren't many weddings because everything yeah. had been pulled off. Just yeah. so it's forced florists to kind of pivot their businesses for many of them and look at different ways to make money and that might be that they decided to do a bouquet service or something like that but then when they went down that route and realized they couldn't get the flowers that they would normally get we're still in a bit of a drought you know when it comes to flowers Mm -hmm. it just made them question a lot of things and so the flower industry in the UK is going great guns and that's despite it being two really really challenging years weather-wise which makes growing very very difficult. So really really dry springs and then very late frosts and then very early frosts but lots of fluctuating temperatures and stuff but still you know it's doing really really well with lots of kind of small micro growers starting up which I think is fantastic Mm. and I think people generally are becoming more aware of where things come from so we've been on this journey with food in the UK where There's a real kind of understanding now of buying locally, buying organically, as much as possible eating seasonally. And that's not to say the supermarkets still don't sell everything out of season. But there is definitely a deeper understanding than there was, you know, when I was growing up, when I remember the first avocado I ever ate and the first pineapple and like, you know, all of this cool, exciting global stuff. And now everyone's just gone actually we should just be eating from that farm down the road who Mm -hmm. yeah okay it might be our 50th broccoli of the month but that's you know (laughs) that's okay Okay. when the asparagus comes it'll be amazing for two weeks Uh yeah (laughs) and flowers are the same and so there's this whole slow flower movement that's happening in the UK which is local flowers understanding the beauty is in the imperfection but also the wonderful things you get with that which is scent like all of the flowers that you buy on these mass marketplaces, most of them don't smell of anything. They're rigid. That's such a good point. They don't have a personality. They're just mm-hmm. all uniform and all the same. I feel like there's a, a real kind of awakening amongst florists and flower growers and also people about actually, yeah, the benefits of these nicer, kind of more local flowers that are growing everywhere, really. But there's still a really long way to go. And I think it does really really worry me it's the same if you were to train to be a gardener or something like that I still don't think there's enough focus on sustainability on how do you make a garden that not only looks good but also can withstand climate change
2: mm-hmm.
0: what are we doing to make sure that we're growing those plants that can withstand these changing in seasons that we're seeing the lack of rain the really dry spells and it's the same when you're a florist if you're training to be a florist a huge part of that should be the origins of the flower how a flower grows mm-hmm. you know the impact of that industry on the environment because for something that's inherently nature-based it is so damaging to the environment (laughs) you know the way things are grown in glass houses and flown across the world and kept refrigerated and modified to make them last for longer for me it's a scary place to be when you stop seeing a flower as a natural thing and more as a product And I think that's where we got to for a while, where it was just a, you know, another thing that you bought rather than a thing that has been grown and taken resource out of the earth to get there. Like a commodity. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. So interesting because here on this show, we talk so much about all the systems that aren't working and are kind of broken because of exactly what Mm. you just explained. Like, we've forgotten where they come from. We've forgotten the impact on the earth and the soil and we've forgotten Mm. even health-wise, you know, some of the chemicals that are sprayed Mm. on those things. I think I read an article where some of the preservatives that are sprayed on the flowers that you might like just pick up at the supermarket, you know, just like your $10 bouquet or whatever has some sort of god-awful stuff sprayed on it. I can believe it. Yeah. And so instead of this, like you said, this natural thing like flowers, you know, here we go. Here we go with uh, another system that's been commodified. I guess it's a word. Mm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think it is and it's well it's just industrialized isn't it and it's yes, made yeah. yeah and it's okay how can we grow that thing faster and better better in mm-hmm. you know because it's not really better but but I think it's like it's generational so when we moved here to Devon there's a sort of horticultural society which I'm part of and the ladies all kind of down in the lane and where I live club together to bring me some flowers around and I now know that they all have the most amazing gardens like unbelievable because they're you know they're part of the horticultural society they're gardeners but they went to the supermarket and bought me flowers from the supermarket to give me mm. <laughs> and i was like i would you know i mean you didn't even need to spend any money but it's not even about the money like it's i would have loved <laughs> the
1: garden. <laughs> yeah that's so
2: interesting that's so funny
0: isn't that funny but that's like the generation above me even yeah so, oh it's, like it had know, more
2: value because it was from the store yeah
0: whereas if they had cut it or bought me a cutting or a plant from their garden I you know that for me would have had more meaning behind it but it really you know there's no sort of judgment here from me when I'm telling the story it was one of those moments where I was like wow even somebody who is part of horticultural society and has an amazing garden and growing didn't sort of make the connection that that you can just go and cut flowers from your garden you don't you have to go and buy I'm yeah, certainly yeah. not for Supermarkets.
2: That reminds me of um, when I was growing up, there was a saying, and this even predates me a little bit, that store bought bread was special. Yeah, it was so good.
1: Store bought. It, mm. it was
2: store bought mint. It was mm. the best. Yeah. So, meaning that, you know, the bread you baked at home was just sort of normal and blase. But if you got it from the store, that was something really special. And what you're describing is what you're doing in the floral industry is like redirecting people's appreciation for just the natural state of things. We talk about this with Mm. food we talk about it with clothing we talk about it with implements that we use every day things you know we cook with and handle and things Mm. we put on our skin all the products you know the closer we get to nature and the things natural state and the more we know the source of them the better Mm. off we are this is kind of the hopefully the way things are going because the other way was taking us into really bad direction with the environment and our health and human exploitation and all those things yeah as awful
0: as these times are because they are you know they're scary and they're unsettling yeah but This whole thing that's happening at the moment, particularly in Europe with the war that's going on, it's really hammering home how broken the system is. Yeah. Whether that be because we no longer want to buy oil from Russia or whether it's because farmers now can't use the amount of fertiliser that they want to use on their fields to grow their crops faster because most of that phosphate comes from Ukraine and Ukraine is in war. And you're suddenly like, but why do we need to grow all these vegetables with all of this fertiliser? Why are we so reliant on... All of these things being available from all around the world when actually there's a benefit to, you know, local growing and local buying and kind of local ways of doing things. And and my husband works for WWF, the charity, and it's times like this when things fundamentally change. And that's my hope is that we're on that journey now where where the system is so broken that things are going to have to change. That's my hope anyway. I have to have hope for my boys, really.
1: <laughs> yeah. And have you seen that really since the war really
0: started? Have you seen a real shift in people's perceptions? So I think it has definitely in the UK. There's a couple of things that have happened, which is I think the outpouring and willingness of British people to welcome refugees when the government's not really doing very much has been amazing for everyone to see. After everything that's gone on with Brexit, with all that horrible stuff, like actually... You know people are kind and the same thing happened in the pandemic actually so there's that side of it but there's What is going to hit over the next couple of months, probably a year, is the cost of living increase. And Mm -hmm. when that hits home with the energy rises, which are it's not just the war which has caused this, there's fundamental issues, you know, in the UK and Europe generally with stuff like this. But all of these kinds of things are going to, I think, force people to just take a step back and think, how can I do things slightly differently? Whether that is, I'm just going to wear a jumper instead of putting my heating on. I don't know what it is. Like, we've made some differences to our lives already. And I think, yeah, I'm hoping that other people will as well. So,
1: yeah, I know. I think in the States, we're just a little more far removed from it. Yeah. I mean, obviously our gas prices Mm -hmm. have been steadily rising. So I think that's one of the main things that we're noticing, but it's just, we're not having to deal with it as immediately in the same way that you guys are. We can kind of turn it off if we want to, which is not
2: unfortunate. Something that sort of, came up for us in the last few weeks is we decided after sort of thinking about it all these years you know we're going to look into the geothermal which i think oh yeah you called it something else on your property subterranean subterranean
0: it's the same thing right so we have we have an air source heat pump which is the it's like a reverse air conditioning unit so but that's what yeah, that is what the government is trying to get most houses here to have instead of a boiler and a central heating system. Yeah. And the geothermal is ground source heating, isn't it? Yeah, do the pipes way down and bring the So that, again, is meant to be amazing. And yeah. Well, we, we thought, okay, we're going to look
2: into it finally because, you know, last time we filled up the tank, it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, how yeah. unsustainable is this? And at the same time, mm-hmm. our neighbor just down the way, said they were thinking about geothermal too. But this is my point. This is yeah. when it's a
0: tipping point, right? Yes, where mm-hmm. we all know that we need to be doing this. We yes. all know that we need to be doing that. But until it gets to the point where it's it triggered to the point where actually it doesn't make sense to not do this anymore. Because exactly. yeah. like people are inherently lazy and that's not like a criticism, mm-hmm. but it, we're comfortable, we're easy, life's been good. And then suddenly, actually, you know, I'm thinking about in my cabin, we live on a windy hill. Why don't I get one of those mini wind turbines and a little battery pack and I could have electricity here for free? So it's stuff like that where I wouldn't have even thought of doing that until now. And we've gone, actually, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's true. The way things
2: evolve and like you say, the tipping point. Yeah. Like what if people were charged for a
1: poundage of trash that was picked up. Yeah. Like what if you had to pay yeah yeah for throwing away plastic
2: or what if companies were, you know, defined if their packaging can't be recycled or composted yeah. or something like that.
1: Yeah, they had to pay a tax to pay yeah. for the process it, yeah.
0: But I think that's all that kind of stuff is you know, I think there's a power in people and making things happen at a lower level. Having worked for a big corporation like Unilever, where it's FMCG, is it's such a slow beast. And mm-hmm. small differences. I think the differences that you can make as a person should never, like, it's easy to feel kind of disheartened. But actually, if we all just do one tiny thing to make a difference, that's collective power. And yeah, that's the kind of way Ed and I always look at things is what can we do to improve just iterations every time like what is it just to get that bit better and to just consume less and use less because yeah. it helps us stay hopeful
1: <laughs> do you feel like in your community I don't know you're new relatively new to this community but generally in your life have you felt like you think about these things a little differently than the people around you mm-hmm. or especially with the dried flower things like yeah. have you felt a little bit like the weirdo who likes dried flowers <laughs> and like
0: I've always <laughs> been a weirdo okay <laughs> oh my son did a mother's day card which was a a flower where it said my mama is and then under each petal was like something about me and uh, so there were all these ones like my mama is in love with flowers and blah blah and then the last one was my mama is sometimes weird and I was like yes yes so I touched upon earlier when we lived in the Netherlands we spent two years in Amsterdam which I think I said you really kind of changed the way we viewed life and not only from a sort of family and sort of perspective but also we lived in the middle of Amsterdam and they celebrate small businesses. They celebrate creativity. They're all about community. Like people will bring their sofas out in the middle of a city and sit on a sidewalk and have some beers and,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: just like lots to people walking past. And, and that was totally different to being British where you close your doors, you close your windows, you lock yourself away. And yeah, and we were like, God, wow, this is lovely. This is so open and nice and then we came back to Farnham and we felt so out of place you know people would say how lovely and wonderful what I was doing was but never buy anything from me or never support me or never mm-hmm. invest in me or never lift me up in that way but always said really nice stuff and anyway so then we moved to Devon and I can't tell you I've had more business here in the 18 months I've been here than I ever have with anyone that I used wow. to live there. like I have been welcomed with open arms even though people didn't really understand what I did in yeah. the first place but they just <laughs> took a punt on me like yeah come and do my window display or coming to my workshops at Christmas I was sold out within a day and all local people who just want to come yeah. and talk. I just think there's a real entrepreneurial atmosphere here where probably a bit like America actually where everyone's just doing their own thing like no one has an office job really my husband does but he's working from home and Everyone runs their own businesses and so they're just very supportive. I do pottery classes with a lady and we basically almost have a have an exchange of our own talents. So I'll do her an installation in exchange for a terms of pottery class and Aww. we're doing collaborations where I'm making dry displays for her pots and then we're splitting, you know, the money that we get from it. And it's like, it just feels lovely to be part of a community. And I think we now know that's what we were missing, but we didn't mm-hmm. know at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Would you say that that shift is more... One towards slow living. Do you resonate with slow living? Is that a term that you're familiar with? And if so, like, does it mean anything to you?
0: I resonate completely with slow living, but I think this world makes it incredibly difficult to practice it. Slow living can be what it is for you. It doesn't have to be a you know a specific thing. Is my life less busy now than it was in Farnham? No, right, <laughs> yeah, right. Because um, you still up. have two kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still. That's exactly it. You know, there's yeah. They want, to, they want to go to swimming. They want to go to carbs. We live near the beach now, so we're always down the beach. Do I spend more time outside, less time in front of my laptop? Do I buy less? Do I eat better food? All of those things are true now that I'm here. Do I drive my car less? Yes, I'm out on my bike all the time. I swim in the sea pretty much every day. And so even though my day is as full, it is full with nurturing stuff. And that to me is slow living if you know mm-hmm. what i mean it doesn't have to be that it's a very slow paced life because i just think that's inherently really hard yeah in this world but i guess the way i'm definitely consuming way less i want less i don't have that comparison thing at all anymore i'm just so happy where i am in location wise but also in my life and in my work all those kinds of needs and wants that I used to have have just sort of gone which I think makes slow living easier yeah yeah I am but I'm really cautious of saying like as I said my life is still way too hectic (laughs) we're desperate for a holiday we haven't had one for three years and like but it's different I don't feel frazzled and stressed and you know that kind of thing so
2: yeah I love that you said you want less yeah yeah
0: really beautiful way to put it
2: and you said your life is still very full, but it's full of nurturing things. Beautiful. I think that's a really, really wonderful way to put it because uh, we always say slow living is has nothing to do with speed or putting your feet up or whatever. Mm. It's probably misnamed in some way. Yeah. But that, what you just said, it's full, but
0: th- it's a different quality of things that are filling it up. Yeah. And just because it's quieter here and there's not as many people, we don't spend as much time in the car and we don't spend as much time battling to get places and do things, which I think yeah. is a lot of it, you know, it's that, yes. you know, someone was very busy and it was always a traffic jam or driving next to a road and just always that constant, like, you know, I think when we moved here, we realized that for a very long time living in a town, we'd been living our lives on high alert because of the kids as well. There's so much traffic, so many people just always looking out for danger. Whereas here, I've got none of that. And it just has really slowed me down inside as well.
1: Yeah. It's amazing for your nervous system, probably. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> That's so true. I, I can remember years before I
2: was able to adopt a more slow living lifestyle and had a lot to, the feeling of not slow living, however you want to put that, had a lot to do with being in a car a lot mm. and, and trying to get from place to place. And that, so much of that is inherent with having kids and having a family and trying to keep the meals going and all that kind of thing but so I when
0: I started botanical tales the thing I really struggled with with slow living or just the desire to do things a bit differently Mm -hmm. I just spent so much time being frustrated by the fact that I couldn't yeah and I think it's a bit like with meditation and the way that's been marketed as well I really struggled with that and then I did a two-week mindfulness course with Unilever actually when I was in the Netherlands and what that taught me was you can be mindful in anything that you do if it's that thing that, that helps you slow your brain down. Uh-huh. So that, for me, is going out in the garden. It's not that I need to listen to a meditation tape for half an hour. Mm-hmm. I just need to go weed the flower bed <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. me done. Yes. And I think that's the point. If you can find a way to make it work for you, whether yes. that's slowing down your life or slowing down your mind or slowing down whatever, then that's the thing. You've just got to find that thing and not get stressed about it.
2: <laughs> oh, it's, it's so true. It's so true. I remember I used to be so stressed out in the mornings getting the kids yeah. up and out the door to school and and that used to just wear me out so much and it just felt so intense. Yeah. And um, I discovered if I didn't turn on all the lights and if I lit a candle instead, It just, it changed the atmosphere and it sort of slowed everybody down and people would come into the kitchen and instead of being all like on, you know, high stress, trying to get out the door, it just kind of slowed things down. So sometimes it's amazing what the simplest little thing can do to shift. But that was, you know, that was a different stage of life for me. That was like 20, 25 years ago. And I, mm. you learn as you get older. You, you yeah. learn.
1: <laughs> I also remember a phase in the, there was a, mom drove us around a lot because there were three yeah. of us and we were all very into our activities. And we lived in the suburbs and nothing we lived was. in the suburbs. Yeah. Was a lot of time in the car. So Do you remember a period of like exclusively Enya or choral music on in the car? Yeah. <laughs> the music was a big part oh, yeah. of my sanity. It really helped
2: yeah so good
0: so good that is calming music though
2: yes yeah no I I had to do something because I was like yeah I'm gonna crack up here you know yeah (laughs) that's me I'm
0: like I'm going in the garden I'm going into my greenhouse I'll see you in hot now sometimes like well before we moved here Ed would be like please just go to the allotment just go for two hours and please don't come back until those two hours are (laughs) <laughs> I know. Max, what does the good dirt mean to you? It's a tricky question, this one, without going literal. I think for me, when I think about good dirt, it takes me back to childhood and it makes me think of my boys and how we have become so protective of children and the way of living. And I think even more so with the pandemic, with all the hand washing, which I totally understand, by the way. But i think there's nothing wrong with being outside and just whether you're digging in the soil or my kids are playing on the beach and digging in the sand or i'm swimming in the sea and i don't have a shower immediately after i come back like just being in natural elements and oh, what was i do oh, i went to the woods the other day with the dogs and there was these the whole floor was carpeted in bluebells and moss mm-hmm. And the smell that was coming up, you know, that like woodland smell, Yeah, I don't, there must be a name for it, but that for me is like good dirt, like that, I was just walking through the woods and that, that smell. And it's like, my boy came into the greenhouse the other day and was like, I love the smell of a greenhouse. I mean, what is that smell? But that for me is like, that is good stuff. Like, you know, how sad I think life would be for me if I didn't ever have any of those smells or that ability to even recognize them. You know, yeah. So I think it's just being in tune with your external environment, whatever that is. And obviously, for people in, living in cities, that's a bit harder. But there's still places you can find all of that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, and to add on to that too, I mean, so beautifully said. But there's also taking it a step further. There's been a sense of like, for whatever reason, we've felt like we it's better to be removed from that or something, or like the way mm. the world is, or, or the systems are, or capitalism, or whatever it is. There's something in the world that wants us to forget that and to be removed from that. yeah and so it's like we're kind of finding our way back to that
2: word you were looking for like what you were smelling in the woods, I guess if you were going to put a you could say it's the humus the yeah decaying right. dirt and that's uh, directly related to the word human oh. really Yes, which reminds us that we are of that
0: interesting but see this is this is because my husband works for WWF this is what we always talk about is you know people always talk about connecting to nature and getting outside in nature but we are nature Yes, we are nature (laughs) yes we don't need to connect we need to reconnect back to where we came from right it's not a go and touch that leaf and feel what that feels like it's like that leaf is us that's exactly what you said it's like Yeah,
2: you took the words right out of my mouth. And I've been saying this a lot, how when we say, oh, we need to reconnect with nature, we need to connect with nature. That's Mm. like setting up the separation. That's like, that's like stating the duality. There's no
0: duality. There's no duality. We are it.
2: We are it. So so instead of the word connect, I think maybe the word to use is acknowledge remember. Acknowledge, acknowledge, remember,
0: recognize, all those yeah. things,
2: because it's not like we need to do something we aren't doing. We can't not be connected to nature. Well, I think the,
0: the problem is when you are disconnected from it, as we've seen, is tenfold because yeah, yeah. you just lose complete sight of like a purpose and what you're doing really and like yeah oh I could talk about that for ages and obviously my husband doing what he's doing we do talk about that a lot like mm-hmm.
1: you're saying <laughs> yeah. WWF is that World Wildlife World Wildlife yeah. Fund okay so that's a lot of like conservation work
0: yeah so he does fundraising but um, at okay. a corporate level so he works with businesses to try to get them to become better at what they do and the way they do it but yeah, yeah. As you can imagine lots of chats about climate change and um, yeah. disconnection of nature and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. the microbiology in the soil
2: is yeah is very much related to our own microbiology. Have yeah. you
1: read Wilding? We just finished that in our book club. Oh yes, I've been there. Yeah,
2: you've been there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've been oh, yeah. there.
0: So it's uh, I took Ed there for his fortieth to go camping for one night because it's just down Nep right in Sussex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they have gl- glamping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, well, we took our tent and we—it was for his fortieth, and it was just us. I left the kids at home, and um, we went and did like a sunrise walk and saw stork nests. And but it's just absolutely what's so amazing about that. And I think, well, you know, as you've read it, is it's again, it's about disconnection, where mm-hmm. lots of conservation has been right. We will save that one species, and we will do that one thing to well, all these things mm-hmm. to save that one species, but not thinking about the fact that actually they're interconnected with all these other species. Mm -hmm. And that's what NEP has done so well is it's gone, okay, well, if we leave that, what happens? That bird comes in and that butterfly comes in because the butterfly is linked to the bird's ecosystem. And it's like, it's just a domino effect, isn't it? Of Mm -hmm. more and more and more. And it's amazing. And it's, my husband used to be an ecologist and he's of that era where you would just be looking for the one species and taking care of the one species. And it's so interesting to now see that actually, it's really being kind of reassessed which is great yeah because it can only be a good thing but it's such a good book and it's such an amazing place
2: yeah and then we uh, we you might have heard the interview we did with the the ladies in Scotland um Breckcroft. Croft Breckcroft. Croft oh, and they yeah. Listen. so that's an interesting one they um mm. these two women ended up with this big property in Scotland with and the land was like really had been abused and stuff so they and they were really into this, the rewilding thing. And they even got further into the re- reassessment of the whole idea because you, you know, people go so far into the rewilding thing and then they forget that, wait, if you're going to do this, then you're going to take the ability to grow any food or you're, or mm-hmm. for this plant to eat. And it just gets so nuanced and so complicated and it's so fascinating. And you'd enjoy that. Yeah, yeah awesome
1: and they have a book called Our Wild Farming Life. That
2: Yeah, oh, nice. and they really yeah, have lovely ladies created a way of doing it and, and honoring the wildness of their property while growing food and
0: Perfect, like, raising yeah.
2: animals. And it's mm-hmm. just so fascinating. There's so much to talk about. But oh, gosh, this has really been fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we got way away from dried flowers. but I know.
0: Yeah, I think it's all linked, isn't it? It's all <laughs> Absolutely. <about that.
1: laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bex. This was so fun. So where can people find you?
0: Uh, so they can find me on Instagram, at botanical underscore tales, I think it is. I've got a website, botanicaltales.com. I'm on Patreon as well, which I'm really loving. I started that a couple of months ago and I just share video tutorials, lots of specifics around dried flowers, kind of really going into the detail of how to grow and dry flowers and what to make with them. And then lots about my surroundings as well. And then I have my first book, Everlastings, which came out in 2020, yeah. Pandemic year. And then her big sister is coming out in June and it's called uh, Flowers Forever. And it is a bigger sister of Everlastings. And I guess it's a real kind of reflection of how my work and my values have evolved over the past couple of years. So it's really, really much more focused on the inspiration I get from my surroundings, lots about growing. So there's a big section on what to grow and instructions on kind of how to dry for good results. And then I think there's 13 projects, but they are. Much bigger than I sort of presented in Everlastings. And it's really about, yeah, the beauty of the outside world and bringing it in. And it's a bit of a love story for when we moved here in Devon because I wrote it in this cabin so yeah it's about that it's about inspiration outdoors making the most of your space and celebrating nature really celebrating us
2: oh i can't wait wonderful we always ask one last question is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with about yourself and what you do or anything else you want to talk about before we say goodbye
0: if you have a passion and you're unsure about it or you don't know what direction to take you know it's going to take you in, just keep going doesn't matter even if you don't know where you're going to end up just keep practicing keep going keep plugging at it because that's what I did and I had no idea and I had so many rejections but yeah and even if it doesn't take you to kind of an end result of business or anything like that I think just to have something that you're interested in and passionate about is uh, really important particularly maybe as a mother as well if you yeah because of how consuming that can be.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. I know that'll resonate
2: (laughs) with so many people.
0: Yes, very much. So
2: thank you. All right.
0: Thanks, guys. It's lovely to meet you. Thank Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to
2: spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more
1: from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at we are Lady Farmer. That's we are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the Good Dirt. Goodbye.